Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, February the 15th, 2024. It is currently 3.51 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. One, two, three, four, and five. I have five pencils right here in my hand, right here on the table where I'm broadcasting from, and these five pencils represent, do you remember? These five pencils represent number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, five tools. Five tools to kill sin. These pencils represent five tools that we have available to us to kill sin. And this is part two of, well, discussing these five tools because, well, we're reviewing a sermon entitled Five Tools to Kill Sin. And I believe they have, uh, I believe it's just one part. Maybe it's two part, but we're still in, we're still in part one. Yes, I think they did two parts. We're in part one of Five Tools to Kill Sin. And I don't know if we're going to review part two, but we're looking at this. And the reason we're looking at this is anytime I hear that someone has the tools to kill sin, I want to know how to do it. Because if I can kill sin, you think at some point then I should be sinless. I should be perfect. If I can kill sin, it may take me a little bit, but at some point I'm going to kill that sin. I'm going to kill that sin. And if you kill something, I, this is just something that I, I, you know, I think, I think you, you don't even need to go to medical school for. Typically when you kill something, it doesn't come back, right? It's killed, right? At least if we're speaking of killing sin in a practical way. And if we're talking about killing sin in a positional way, well, it was killed in Christ because in Christ, I'm crucified. I died. I was buried and I ascended to the right hand of the father. Sin is dead positionally and I don't need tools to do it. It's already done. If you're talking about killing sin practically, well, can I really truly kill it? Because if I kill it, then that sin should be gone forever. Now, before we go back and to review this, and I, I do realize I don't have the, the sermon actually queued up to where we need to be, so it's going to be a little rough here in a minute trying to find the right spot, but that's okay. We'll figure all of that out. But before we get back to it, the first part of this message that we reviewed, again, uh, f- uh, five tools to kill your sin, you can find it on the Sermons 2.0 app. The, there, it was, it was, it already got a little confusing and, and a little frustrating because, and, and this is so true whenever you hear the evangelical world, the Christian world talk about sin because it's always like, it, it's always spoken of something like this. You can kill it. You have the power to say no to it. You have the power to say yes to God. You've been set free. You can overcome it. You can do it. And then at the same time, they'll be like, but, 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 but wait, 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 wait. You may have been set free. You may, so you, you, you're dead to it. You have power. You have the ability, but well, you can't actually be sinless. You can't actually be perfect, which is always confusing. I have power, but obviously the power is limited. I'm set free, but I'm not really set free. I'm a new creature in Christ. The old is gone and everything is new. Well, not really because you still have an old nature. And it's like, well, wait a minute. 
Now, it, it, it makes sense if you draw a distinction between my positional reality and my practical reality, but they say all of these things are true practically. They, they almost ignore the positional reality. Well, then they say it's all true practically to only then acknowledge, well, then you're not really free. I mean, I'm saying you're free, but you're not free because you can't really get to sinless perfection. I mean, you're a new creature and the old is gone, but the old is not really gone because you still have a sinful nature. I mean, you have power, but that power cannot get you to sinlessness. And they never bother to explain the never-ending contradiction in their own words. Now, again, you can eliminate the contradiction if you speak of a positional reality and a practical reality where Christians tend to just, I don't know, they obliterate that distinction and then it just gets really confusing. And everyone in the pew will be like, amen, I'm set free. I can say no to sin. I can say yes to God. I have power. I can do it. And then at the same time, they don't seem to realize that they sin, 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 sin. And it really leads to almost a self-denial of and living in a world that's not even anywhere consistent with the reality in which we experience. So we started, so that was a little confusing in the first part that we reviewed. But here's what I want to do. All right. I want you to pay close attention to me. I want you to pay close attention to me. Before we even go back to my five pencils and we go back to these, the, you know, the five tools, before we go, before we even touch any of that, we have to discuss something. All right. This is very important. So many times, those within the evangelical fundamentalist, the Christian world, right? How, whatever label you want to put on it, seems to speak of victory over sin, killing sin, you know, somehow being vict- victorious over sin. And I think in many cases, they speak of victory. They speak of defeating it, of killing it, of being dead to it. They speak of it in terms of what we do externally, that we we don't give into this temptation externally. We don't do this. We don't do this. We don't do this. And I want to put forth a principle. External obedience, external resistance to temptation, external anything, no way in any way, shape, or form proves or demonstrates internal Obedience, meaning you can be externally obedient. You can be externally victorious, but at the very same time, you are still sinning internally. Externally, you may not give in to the temptation, right? Of lust. You may not actually do anything, but if you've lusted, you're already guilty. So externally, you look victorious, but internally, you look back externally. You may be looking at that person at church going, Hey, how are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? How are the kids? How's, how's everyone going? And you show that you seem to like you care. You show that you're friendly, but inside you resent them. Inside you really wish that things were not going so well. You don't like them. You don't love them. You, you almost despise them externally, you may look to your pastor going, hey, pastor, how are you doing? But internally, you're like, he's an idiot. I don't even like his preaching. And so external obedience, external victory does not prove anything because internally it could be disobedience, sin, sin, sin. But Christians sometimes speak of all of this. You can do this. You can do this. Sometimes I think you're talking about, hey, that we can do something external. But just let me state it again. External victory 
external obedience, external resistance in no way, shape, or form proves that you have internally resisted, internally obeyed, internally, internally, you could be committing all the sins that you are not committing internally. You could be guilty of every single sin that you have resisted externally. Now we'll pat ourselves on the back for that external victory and we'll say we're doing so well. Now look, let me make it very clear. There are great benefits from that external obedience. Typically, if you're obeying externally, you're going to get you're going to keep yourself out of trouble and scandal and controversy and 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 you probably you probably won't be hurting anybody. But from a purely theological standpoint, you're still guilty before a holy God. Now, what we have a tendency to do if we have the externals down. Many cases, what we do, we so focus on the externals that we become condemning and judgmental and we seem to show no mercy and no grace to anyone. But maybe before we start running around pointing our finger and condemning everyone, we take a moment to remember what we are inside. External obedience doesn't necessarily prove anything internally. And I mention that Because in the sermon that we were reviewing, they got to tool number one to combat sin, to kill sin. And what tool number one was admit it. So admit something is sinful. And number two, just say no to it. So admit that it's a sin and just say no. Well, let me make it very clear. Just saying no to a sin doesn't mean you're killing anything. It just means you're saying no to the external involvement in it. You still may be guilty of it inside. Now, there's, they tried to explain saying no to it externally and saying no to it internally. But the only problem is if you're saying no to it internally, there may be a high probability you've already thought it, felt it, and now you're trying to say no to it. So it could mean that you're already guilty of it. Like how, how, how much can be going on inside before it becomes a sin? Now, Jesus says, if you even look at a woman with lust, it's a, now, some people say, okay, well, well, I mean, I got the thought and I immediately got rid of it. Okay, well, congratulations. But how long does it have to be present before it becomes a sin? Any lack of conformity to the holiness of God in thought, word, deed, feeling, desire is sin. Well, I, I, I'm going to argue that in many cases we've already sinned and we, and when we get ready to start trying to say no to it, we've already sinned. So inter- external victory is wonderful from a practical standpoint, from a human perspe- uh, standpoint, from everyone watching you and seeing you standpoint does not mean in any way, shape or form theologically that you can brag about your great spiritual victory because internally you may have messed up 30 different ways. And we don't like to sometimes admit how messed up we are internally. So that is a very important principle. Now, what I'm going to do here is see if we can get to kind of where we were. This is close to where I think we are. Um, I'm going to start it here. Now, we're, now look, I did not have it queued up perfectly, so this is not going to enter. We may, I may hit play and he may be right in the middle of a sentence, okay? But we're, we should have this queued up somewhere close to where he's about to go through Point number one, which is the first tool to kill sin is to admit it and to just say no. 
Just say no. And look, I'm all for saying no. That's great. That's great. And we, we should use everything in our power to say no to whatever we can. We should. I, I should. You should. We should say no. I'm not in any way diminishing that. I'm not in any way taking away from that. I'm not arguing that, hey, you should say yes. My argument is I don't know what that actually kills sin because it may stop an external involvement, but internally you may have already, the, the, the minute you start struggling with saying no, you probably have already committed it internally. And, and again, even if you say no and you stop that particular sin, you still have a sinful nature. So again, whenever we even we talk about killing sin, you're talking about killing, the sin nature is where everything comes from. So killing sin, you're talking about killing individual sins, which is great, but you got to acknowledge you're still a sinner. So I like, I, it, it's just so weird how we talk about some of these concepts, but let's see where he takes this. Maybe we'll get to pencil number two. I got them right here. You got five pencils, right? Number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. Get your five pencils now, ladies and gentlemen. Get your five pencils now, class. Lay them down. If someone walks by, go, hey, don't touch my, don't touch my pencils. Those are my tools to kill sin. Now, your kids may go, well, you probably need to use those a little bit more, mom, or you may need to use those a little bit more, dad, or your spouse may go, <laughs> you got tools to kill sin. That's news to me. Okay, all right. So, but have them out. Have them out, all right? Your visual aid. I got them out. They have to be pencils, right? Because nothing, any other writing instrument is not sanctified. Okay, all right, here we go. We have five, right? So number one is what, class? Admit it, acknowledge it, and just say no. Now, let's jump back in. And so let's see. I know this is going to be abrupt, and I hate, I hit hit the go live button before I queued up the sermon. I apologize for that, but let's, uh, let's ease into this. It says denying ungodliness. It's telling you, it's teaching you to deny ungodliness, to say, no, I don't want to follow this ungodly thought, ungodly life. All right, so he's right there in the middle of giving us point number one. The first tool is just say no. And he says, you say no, I don't want to follow this ungodly thought. Well, you've already got the ungodly thought. Now, it's all great that you want to say no to it. Now you're going to try to resist it. And I'm all for trying. The point is, though, you've already sinned. Now, where did the ungodly thought come from? It comes from your sinful nature. So even if you kill that thought, quote unquote, even if you stop that thought, quote unquote, even if you don't follow that thought, quote unquote, (laughs) the very nature that's producing those thoughts it's still with you. So then how do you, how, do you, can you truly kill it in any meaningful way, practically speaking? And worldly lusts. And then it says, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So it's the fact that Jesus Christ has come to the Christian, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to no to uh, these worldly lusts or worldly passions and to live in a, in a self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present world. Are you a good student of, uh, to, to what grace has been teaching you? Have you been learning about putting sin to death? 
Have you learned to say no? What a simple lesson this is. This is to deny ungodliness. This is what I need to do every day. I have to say, I need to deny ungodliness. This is coming towards me. I say no to it. I deny it. Please note, this is coming towards me. I need to say no to it. Let me stress it again. We always, for some weird reason, Christians always put the focus on the external. The thing coming towards you, whatever that may be, the reason it may even be tempting, the reason it may even be appealing, the reason it may even be difficult is because, ladies and gentlemen, because of an internal nature that desires it, the internal nature that hungers for it, the entire, the internal nature that wants it. So you can be saying no to all the external things and trying to fight it, but the internal source of all your problems is not going away. Now, yes, every day we need to try to say no to sin. I'm not denying that. I'm trying to challenge us to have a more realistic approach to this. Look, he's already tried to, he's already acknowledged a lot of what I'm saying. Even though we probably wouldn't agree, even in his sermon, though, he's acknowledged the reality. You can never get to sinlessness. You can never get to perfection. So you're always going to be in sin in some way, shape, or form. But at the same time, he's tried to claim that we now have power from God, that we can say no to sin, and that we can kill it. Well, if I've got the power to say no and kill it, then I should have the power to get to perfection. But since I don't have the power to get to perfection, then obviously it's never killed. Obviously, I can't ever say no in an ultimate sense. So all I'm saying is, yes, in the middle of the fight, while we're fighting it, while we're battling it, while we're trying to say no to it, we have to have a painful reality check. Hey, there, this is, uh, I am always going to be in sin. And that means we have to then rely ultimately not on my battle against it, not in whether I will be victorious over it or fall under it. What my hope is and what I need to look to every single time I'm confronted with this battle with sin is to acknowledge how sinful I am and then flee to the foot of the cross to find forgiveness in the finished work of Jesus Christ and hold hold on to and trust in the fact that I am saved, not by an infused righteousness, but by an imputed righteousness. And I need to remember that no matter what is going on in my life practically, whether it's victorious, whether it's defeat, that I stand before God holy, perfect, and righteous because by faith alone, his imputed righteousness His imputed righteousness is mine. And I now stand perfect, holy, and righteous positionally on these things. Practically, (laughs) we're still sinners. What could be simpler? The first step in Christian mortification is to be negative about anger. I'm getting angry. I can feel myself. Becoming very angry and upset about the matter. I must stop, pause, ask myself, what does the scripture teach me? I deny ungodliness. This, This is sinful anger. There is, of course, a righteous anger, but we are not talking about that. Now, the minute you know you're experiencing sinful anger, have you not already then sinned? Now, yes, you want to stop it. You don't want it to grow. You don't want to act upon it. What I'm just trying to get you to acknowledge 
You've already sinned. <laughs> so, so, so now if I say no, if I say no to anger, no to sinful anger, does that kill it? So it's never coming back. What's the source of that sinful anger? My sinful nature saying no to the sinful anger manifesting itself externally. And even if I say no to my sinful anger and I may be stopping the external manifestation of it, it still may not go. Yeah, I may try to convince myself, but internally it still may be very much there. Even after I've said no to it. About revenge, about uh, bitterness, about self-pity, about lust or, or sinful desires of the mind. The things that your, your mind is, is, is hankering after. The, the desires, sinful desires and the lust of the flesh. The scripture says these things that your, your body, your mind craves, you are to deny ungodliness. Meaning to say no in modern language. We can't live happily Unless we say no to sin. And that should be our attitude. I got no problem saying that we should say no to it. But if you can't be happy, unless you can say no to it, well, you're never going to truly be happy because you can never truly ultimately say no to it because you're always sinning in some way, shape, or form. And that's where Christianity gets always baffling to me is nobody ever stops to just see how con- convoluted and confusing this whole thing gets. My happiness has to be derived f- first and foremost from my actual standing before God positionally. The reason I can experience peace is because I have peace with God, not based on what I do or don't do, not based on whether I'm sinning or not sinning, but based on the fact that in Christ, I am 100% holy because of my imputed righteousness. My positional standing is the thing that ultimately gives me happy, happiness and joy and contentment and peace. It's that positional standing. If I'm looking to my practical reality for some kind of peace or stability or happiness or joy, I'm going to be constantly disappointed because you know what I'm going to find every single day when I get to the end of the day and I lay down in bed, I'm going to be like, man, I did not love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. I did not love my neighbor as myself. And he calls me to be holy as he is holy. And I did not come anywhere close to that. I'm supposed to do this. And I'm supposed to desire God's word more than gold and silver. And I did not do that. And I'm supposed to do this. And I'm supposed to do this. And I'm not supposed to feel this. And you're usually every single day, if you're even remotely honest, no, I've committed who knows how many sins today. Look, it's only, it's 4.14 p.m. Central Time. I don't even know how many sins I've already committed today. So what's my hope? Now, I wish I could say that, okay, my hope is, all right, the rest of the day, I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no. No, my hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ and his imputed righteousness. I want to try to say no, and I'm going to try to say no, and I'm going to try to fight, and I'm going to try to combat it, and I we should. But, I mean, just say no. <laughs> just say no, ladies and gentlemen. Just say no. Now, we should try it. 
But remember, our issue is we've got something inside of us, a sinful nature that will never, ever, ever say no to sin. It will constantly say no to God. Now, I know some Christians want to believe in the eradication of that old nature. And if you believe in the eradication of the old nature, don't argue with me about you eradicating it. Just prove it by never committing another sin, which should be possible and probable if you do not have that old nature. But you very much do. And that nature will will never say no to sin and will always say no to God. So we stop ourselves. The children begin to talk about certain situations, gossiping. Your spouse starts to talk about individuals and situations and gossiping. And you begin to think, oh, I'd like to hear more of this. Carry on talking. You stop yourself. No, let's put, put uh, this to, to an end. Let's not talk about this, children. This is not, this is not right way of talking about individuals. And then also say no to Satan. I'm thinking of the way Satan makes capital out of our falls. Who hasn't encountered this? Who, which Christian hasn't encountered uh, these accusations of Satan? Can you be a Christian with thoughts and with passions and with words like those passing through your mind? How can you be a Christian? What do you reply to the devil? You, you reply to the devil in this way. Devil, I want you to know that I do say no to these things. I 1,000% disagree. Do not tell Satan, no, I say no to these things. Say, Satan, I'm a Christian, not because I say no, not because I say yes. I'm a Christian because the eternal son of God died for me upon Calvary. He obeyed the law perfectly for me in his life. He was buried. He rose the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the father. And by faith, his obedience is mine. His death washes my sin away. His obedience and righteousness now becomes mine. And I am now in him seated at the right hand of the father in Christ Jesus. I am with him. I'm seated in heavenly places in him and I in Christ, I am perfect. I am holy and I'm obedience. So for everything I've done in Christ, I have not done it in Christ. I am a good and faithful servant in Christ. I'm a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. That's what you say to Satan. You don't get into Satan talking to Satan about, no, I say no to these things because even Satan would know you're a liar but I'm like the disciples that their spirit was willing but their flesh was weak sometimes I fall even even though I say I've said no but I say no I hate these things I don't love these things that I fall into don't say that because that's a lie 
There's things, there's times you love those things. To say that you don't love those things is a lie. You love those things. You love your idols. You love your sins sometimes. To say that you don't is ridiculous. Remember, I guess the fame, the famous quote that's attributed to Martin Luther. I don't, I would have to verify if this is 100% accurate, but the idea someone said, do you love God? He says, love him. Sometimes I hate him. Well, get, don't you hate your sin? Sometimes I love it. Sometimes I cannot wait for you to stop talking to me so that I can go commit it. Sometimes I love my anger. Sometimes I love my resentment. Sometimes I love my bitterness. It makes me feel good because I'm hurt by those people and I'm angry and it makes me feel good to resent and hate them. Oh, oh, I know. We're not supposed to say that. If we did not have some love for our sin, if we did not have some love for it, if we did not have some love for self, if we didn't have some love for pleasure, then I think there would be a high probability we could probably stop doing it. If we truly hated everything, at some point after a while, you'd be like, you know, I hate doing this and I keep doing it. And and if we, if we keep doing it, even when we hate it, then there's a really deep problem going on, which may mean that our sin nature then even has more control than we even admit. Don't get into saying, I say no, but sometimes I don't say no. But when I don't say no, I want you to know that I hate these things. What, what was... Why would you get into a conversation with Satan that way? No, Satan, you got you want to make an accusation to me? Make all the accusations you want because it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. And he justified me not on the basis of my actions. He justified me on the basis of his grace, mercy, and on the obedience, the passive and active obedience of Jesus Christ and his death on that cross. You, you take your accusations to my advocate. You take your accusations to my savior. And guess what? He will say those sins have been paid for and he is now covered in this perfect righteousness of my son. And your accusations have no impact. Nobody's accusations have any impact on me because any accusations you make as far as my position in Christ, I am perfect and holy. Practically, probably you don't even have enough accusations to make against me. Why would you get into an argument with Satan? Hey, Satan, I say no. I mean, that means I, sometimes I say no, but then sometimes I do the things I say no to. Hey, but guess what? I hate it. Come on. Satan will be looking at you like... <laughs> You're telling me you hate it. You're a liar. And I think lying is a sin. I say no to your suggestion, Satan, that I can't be a Christian because the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, died for these very sins, my sins. And that is all my hope, that Jesus Christ died for me. Now, the last part is what he should have started with. That last part is beautiful. My only hope. I think that's the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the, what is your only hope in life and death? Someone look up, you should look up the Heidelberg Catechism. I think it's question number one. What is your only hope in life and death? You should look to, look to that. My only hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Satan, make all your accusations. It's paid for. It's done. It's finished. It, it, it has nothing to do with what I do or don't do. I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. I am not saved by an infused righteousness. We are not Roman Catholics. 
and an imputed righteousness. It can't be seen. It's imputed. It's accredited to my account. I'm just declared to be that which I am not. I'm declared to be righteous, but I'm not. I'm declared to be a new creature and the old is gone and all is new, but I'm not that practically. And gave his heart's blood for me. They are, they, my sins are forgiven. All of them are forgiven. In other words, dear friends, we never lose our conviction taught us by the word of God that salvation is because of the grace of God. Not by works, not by some righteous works that we do, not by re- some outward religion that we depend on. No, no, our salvation, forgiveness of sin doesn't come from that. I hope you understand that, the teaching of the word of God. No amount of church going, no amount of religious activity is going to wipe away your sins. Only Christ's blood will wipe away your sin. Divine justification has become our status since we put our trust in Jesus Christ. That's where we begin. It's not because of some robe of personal righteousness, because we have done this or that thing for other people or or in the name of God. No. I'm going to throw out a radical idea. You got your pencils? You got your pencils? One, two, three, four, five. You got them? He said number one is admit it and say no. I'm going to make a radical argument. The number one way I'm not going to put these in order, but I think this is where I would start. The number one way to kill sin as a Christian is to completely and 1,000% rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ, cling to the imputed righteousness, and you look to that, that is your hope, that is your security, that is everything. That the number one way to kill sin is for you to cling to, run to, fall into, wrap yourself around the imputed righteousness of Christ and his finished work. His shed blood, hey, my sins have been paid for and now I am declared righteous and and that it is your identity in Christ. the, the, The number one way to kill sin is to start with your, who you are in your position, what you are in your position and your position you are forgiven and your position you are righteous. In your position, you are holy. In your position, you are a good and faithful servant. Remember what you are. The number one way to kill sin is to remember where you are and what you are positionally, to remember your identity in Christ. I'm going to say that's the number one place to start. Because that gives you your hope, that gives you your security, that gives you your stability. Because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're going to sin, you're going to sin, you're going to sin, you're going to sin. And you either lose your mind dealing with it, or you kind of just start saying, well, as long as I'm not committing big ones, or you start convincing yourself you're more righteous, or you become very condemning because you're kind of projecting your failure on other people, and then you're condemning it and other people. I think there's all kinds of psychological games Christians play, and how to uh, deal with the reality is, I'm sorry, you're still sinning. I think the number one way to kill sin is to start with what I am in Christ. My positional standing. My, the, I'm just going to stress it. Imputed, 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 imputed righteousness. That's a righteousness that's accredited to you. You're still unrighteous. 
So number one, number one, I'm throwing, I'm throwing it. Number one, I'm going to change his number one. He says, say no. I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes to what I am in Christ Jesus. I'm going to cling to my position and to imputed righteousness. That's where I would start. But this Christ blameless life that's been put over to me, imputed to us. You see, it is the Lord Jesus who has saved us and not we ourselves. So however daring it, it sounds under other circumstances, under the, these circumstances, we have to say categorically, I can never be more regenerate than I am at this minute. Nor more justified. Nor more joint to the Lord Jesus Christ. Make that very clear. I can never be more regenerate, never be more justified, never be more connected to Jesus Christ than I am the moment I'm saved. So I could be saved. Now I know some people, I know I'm getting ready to just create all kinds of controversy, but I'm sorry. You either believe that you're saved by an imputed righteousness or you're going to categorically deny it. You've only got two options in the Christian life. And my argument is if you're going to deny imputed righteousness, just go back to a Catholic church instead of running around to these fake Protestant churches who claim to be against Catholicism while they basically teach a form of infused righteousness. Here's the thing. When the moment I was saved, the moment I was saved, the moment I was saved, by faith alone, apart from works, I can never be more justified. I can never be more regenerated. I can never be more connected to Jesus Christ than I was by faith. Even if I got in an airplane tonight, like in just a few minutes, I, got, I ran to the Abilene airport, got a plane, flew from... um Abilene to Dallas, caught a connecting flight to Vegas, and then I ran to Vegas and I slept with prostitutes. I got drunk. I gambled. I did. I ran around the strip on Las Vegas without any clothes on. I, I would, I could, I would not be any less justified. I would not be any less regenerated. I would not any be any less connected to Christ in my in uh, uh, my salvation. Now, my fellowship with God would be obviously hurt. I would clearly be in sin. I clearly would be, you know, doing that which is wrong and need to be confronted. It needs to be condemned and I need to be convicted and I need to obviously repent and, and, and change my mind about what I'm doing and, and, and seek not to do it. But it would not impact my salvation one bit. Not one bit. Now, I know the rest of you, no true Christian can do that. No true Christian can do that. Well, true Christians can commit any sin that anyone can commit. Because we have the same sinful nature. You say, no, 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 no. You've been crucified with Christ positionally. If I am crucified with Christ practically and I'm dead, then I should be able to be sinless. But since I can't be sinless, that means I'm not dead. I'm very much alive. You say, but you're a new creature. The old is gone. Positionally, if that was true practically, the old would be gone, meaning I would not have a sinful nature. Therefore, I should be sinless. Nor more adopted than I am now. Even with these Failures, even with all of my sins, even with all of my bad thoughts and desires, because I am still trusting in Christ, and it is Christ who holds me. It's Christ who saves me. He is my hope, not me. I'm not trusting myself. 
Forgiveness is God's gift to me. I didn't deserve it. It was not according to my deserving. I didn't earn it. And nothing can separate me from God's love. And so you, you say to the devil these things. Say no. I, I'm not looking to myself for my hope and salvation. All is due to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're going to make number one. I got my pencil here again. I got, come on, do, where's your pencils? Some of you are not participating. Get your pencils. She said, I don't have any pencils in this house. Repent, repent and go to office depot. All right. Get a pencil. Number one, we kill sin by first and foremost looking to, clinging to what we are in Christ Jesus, clinging to imputed righteousness, remembering our identity in Christ. That's number one, not saying no. In a sense, saying yes to what I am, remembering it, holding on to it, clinging to it. That gives us stability. That gives us something to hold on to. That gives us something to go, hey, I'm secure in this. I, I, nothing, no, no, you know, I'm gonna, I may fight against sin and I may fail 3,000 times, but I'm secure. I'm, that I'm in Christ Jesus and I'm perfect. I'm all holy. That it gives you that sense of security and peace. I, I, I think that that is where we have to start. And I will fall. I will fail many, many, many times. But Jesus Christ is there making intercession for me. Correction. It's not that we're going to fail many, many, many times. We are going to be in a constant state of failure because any lack of conformity to God and thought, word, desire, feelings, any, any lack of conformity in every, in any area of our life, we're in sin. Again, I say this all, I mean, it's like a broken record at this point. The Bible says, love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You never pull that off. Love your neighbor as yourself. You never pull that off. Be ye holy as he is holy. If you even think for a second that you pull that off, you've got bigger problems. You're delusional. You're self-deceived and you need some serious, a wake-up call. So we are in a, it's not that we're going to fall many, 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 many times. We're always fallen because we are in sin continually in some way, shape, or form. We may fall into specific sins. We may fall into scandalous sins. We may fall into public sins. We may fall into something that really, really is bad, but we're always in some kind of sin. And I say no to these sins. I am ashamed of them. I'm not glorying in them. I'm not happy about it. But I will eventually see all of these things all put to death as I leave this world. I love that. Eventually, I will see them all put to death. Eventually, meaning they will never truly be put to death on this earth. So then, do these tools actually kill sin? Do they? If you're telling me that they will not ultimately be put to death until glorification, then that means, do I ever truly kill them here? I mean, like, that, that, we just need a more realistic understanding of exactly what can and cannot happen in the life of a Christian. So in the school of the Lord Jesus Christ, you learn about mortification and you put into practice what you learn by, and you say no, no to sin and you... Keep on putting it to death until the day you you breathe your last. 
Don't you just see like from a, just a logical perspective, you keep on putting it to death. You keep on putting it to death. Do you not understand how weird that's got to sound to anyone's mind? Wait, so I put it to death, but it's not dead. So I keep on putting it to death. Is it like I'm trying to, it's like I'm trying to kill a zombie that just keeps getting up and getting up and get, and for some reason I can't take the zombie out with the way you're supposed to kill zombies. Don't want to get too graphic. I mean, but I just, I keep shooting it. It keeps getting back up. I keep shooting. It, it keeps getting back up. Well, then am I ever killing it? Can you say that you have to keep killing it? That doesn't, you don't keep killing something. You kill it and it's killed. So then you would say you have to keep fighting against it. You have to keep struggling against it. You have to keep battling against it. I don't know if you can say you keep killing it. That would be like you keep attempting to kill it, but you're never going to kill it. So the, the, the ultimate thing is you keep trying, but you're never going to, you're never going to kill it. So then, okay. <laughs> so then these tools that you're giving me are not very effective. Now, the first tool I gave you is very effective because it points you to what is the most effective. In Christ, your sins are killed. In Christ, your sins are done away with. In Christ, you're perfect, holy, and righteous. Well, let's see, where, let's see if he moves us to the second one. All right, here we go. And you, you also say no to Satan, who attempts to drive you to despair. And some of us, we have been driven to despair. Some of us, we have been so much under his accusation and and instead of looking to Christ, you've been listening to these voices and these thoughts and your past. Look to the Lord Jesus, dear friends. Another thing is this. So you say no. Another thing is to say yes. Yes. And this is, again, the Apostle Paul speaks about this, that he must be positive. Not only say no, but he says in Titus 2 and verse 12, we should live soberly, that is with self-control, righteously and godly in this present world. So this is what I must do. By the grace of God, depending on the Lord Jesus Christ, I live with self-control, uprightly, godly lives in this present world. So you must be positive. You, uh, there must be no mere negativism. The way you drive out the old is to replace it with the new. So if, if all, of, all you do is in your garden is pull out weeds, and that's all that you do, you'll be pulling weeds for the rest of your life. And that's it. Your life is a, not a gardener, but a puller of weeds. That's all you do. But no, you need to replace that with actual plants, with flowers, and the beauty of all of those things. And that's the point. You, you read the epistles, that's the point of the last few chapters of each epistle. To encourage us in following Christ. Planting and watering by all those many positive exhortations. So if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap from the Spirit. Yes, Life, dear friends, comes, comes from not neglecting weeding, but also to be planting and watering. So it sounds like, so number one, you say no. Number two, you say yes. You just say yes. And then once again, it goes back to God. You, you can't do this yourself. God's going to give you the power. God's going to give you the ability. 
Once again, this is where it gets so confounding and confusing and and sometimes listening to Christians talk. Well, if God's giving me the power and the ability, then I should be sinless. Why is it that God gives me the power, but he doesn't give me the power to get to the... So how much power do I have? Do I have the power to get to 50% better, 60% better? So I, I think number one is we say yes to the imputed righteousness and we cling to that. I would say number two, I don't know what to do with his number two. I, 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 his second thing, I don't know what to do with it. I, his second thing, I mean, we should pursue righteousness. We should pursue godliness. We should. I mean, by all means, we should. I don't know if that's going to kill sin. So I, I don't, I don't know what to do with his second one. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it'll come to me later. But right now, number one is, I, I think number one is where we say yes to, to, to who we are and what we are in Christ and his imputed righteousness and his blood and the forgiveness of sin. That's what we cling to. If we pray, Lord, help me to bear much fruit, then that should result in me actually following my prayer. Then we'll be sure to sit under the preaching of, the, of Jesus Christ and his gospel. The best kind of preaching in our area, wherever we are. If, if we can go to a place where the word of God is faithfully preached, that's where I want to be because I want to grow. I want the seed to be planted. I, I want the fruit to be, to be growing in my life. If I'm really praying, Lord, help me to bear much fruit spiritually in my life. Then I'll be reading my Bible every day, studying it. And then I'll pick up one or two or maybe three, however much you can handle, of, of various good, faithful Christian books. Okay, so I think this is turning into, I think, I so said, wait a minute, now God's going to give me the power to do it. But what I really need to do is I need to read my Bible, I need to study my Bible, I need to listen to good preaching, and then I need to get a number of good Christian books. Now, see, that sounds like, that's not God doing it, that's me doing it, right? So, hey, listen to sermons, read your Bible, study your Bible, actually study. Now, it, it would be interesting to know how many Christians actually engage in any meaningful Bible study because it's hard to get, I know this. I've taught the 12 methods of Bible study from Nebraska to Texas. I've taught, taught it on radio. I've taught it on the internet. I've taught it to youth. I've taught it to adults. I've taught it Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. And I can never get anyone to actually even complete the 12 methods of Bible study for crying out loud. I may get people excited at the beginning and they'll do two or three methods and they stop. You can't even get people to do one study of each method. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. So I know that like, yeah, it's hard to get people to actually study the Bible. So then like, all right, so now guess what? You're supposed to study your Bible. You're supposed to read. You're supposed to listen to sermons. Okay. Well, now all you've done is, if, okay, if I don't do these things, are they sinful? Well, the Bible says that you are to desire the word of God more than gold and silver. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of his mouth as newborn babes to desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The word of God, it is inspired and it is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So at that point, can I make a very sound argument that if you're not pursuing God's word, loving God's word, desiring God's word, memorizing God's word and studying God's word, that you're in sin? It's a high probability that the very tool he's giving you to combat sin will become the very thing that only condemns you even more and gives you more sin. 
Now, this is supposed to be about saying yes, but it's turning in. Do this, 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 do this. And I let me make it very clear. You can listen to sermons 24 hours a day. You can read your Bible another 24 hours a day. You can study your Bible another 24 hours a day. It will not, let me make it very clear, eradicate your sinful nature. And that someone could listen to sermons 24 hours a day, read their Bible 20. I know you can't do all of these things in a 24 hour day, but you could use every 20. First of all, you can't even do it 24 hours a day, but let's just say you could do it 10 hours a day. Read, study, listen. Okay, let's just say you could. Now, because you're spending so much time doing that, you may be able to cut down on so much sin. But let me make it very clear. Even if you to do all those things, guess what? You're never going to be holy as God is holy. You're probably still never going to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And you're still not going to love your neighbor as yourself. And you're still going to have a sinful nature that that's where selfishness and everything else comes from. Now, I know we may want to, may not want to admit that, but that's just the way it works. Now, am I saying we should not read or study? Obviously, I'm the one who's promoting reading and studying all the time. So this is supposed to, you say no to sin, you're supposed to say yes to God who's going to give you the power to do it, but then you have to turn around and you've got to be then reading and studying and listening and doing and doing and doing and doing and doing and doing. And somehow that's supposed to kill sin. I don't, I'm, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We should read and we should study. We should. Absolutely. However much you can digest. Some of you might digest a page a day uh, or, or a book, just one book. But some of you might manage two or three things. Uh, that's that's the, uh, you will have to see. But you you begin to read, study the Word of God. You read the uh, good, helpful literature. You'll be seeking to see how you can serve others around you, especially those over the household of faith. The Scripture says you'll be meeting with Christians for prayer, and we'll be praying for and with our families. And we'll also pray alone by ourselves before God and go to God earnestly. Daily. That's what we'll be doing. If I so, so the way we, so the second tool is to say yes and do all these things. Read your Bible, listen to sermons, study your Bible. Um, let's say read your Bible, study your Bible, listen to sermons. Oh, and read Christian books, go to church, pray, serve others. The list is starting to get long, and the longer that list gets, the greater chance the very list he's giving you that's supposed to help you kill sin will only increase your sin because the things he starts giving starts falling into the category of, everybody ready for this? This is a very important theology, a very important theological concept, law. And the law only exposes and increases sin. It does not kill. It does not stop. It exposes and increases. It even provokes it. And the more law he gives you, the more you're going to see how much you don't love God, how much you love yourself, 
how like lack of self-discipline you have, how much you love yourself more than others. You're going to start seeing the more law he gives you, the more you're going to be broken and humbled and you will flee to Christ. So I will say, if you want to kill sin, number one, cling to, hold on to, say yes to the imputed righteousness of Christ and his shed blood. I'm going to say number two, openly and honestly acknowledge how far you fall short of God's holiness practically. Just be honest with it. Just honestly acknowledge it. Just humbly accept it. Just, and, and, and every time you read your Bible and he's giving you all these rules and laws, just look to those laws and say, I don't, 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 I don't. I think the number, number two way to truly kill sin is to acknowledge how, uh, how much sin is running rampant in your life and how far you fall short because that will keep you humble. That will keep you away from self-righteousness. That will keep you from self-deceit. That will, that may even increase the fear you have have of your own self. And we talked about the end of 2023 that two very important concepts, fearing God and fearing self. Guess what? The more you see of yourself, the more you'll fear yourself. So I would say number one is say yes to the absolute perfect imputed righteousness of Christ and cling to that. And number two, I need you to honestly assess and admit Deeply, how no matter how many things someone gives you, you're not going to do them. He can make this list. He can he can add to the list. He can add prayer. He can just add and add and add and add and add and add and add. And all it's going to add is your condemnation. All it's going to add is your sin. All it's going to do is add your to your guilt and shame. I'm praying to the Lord. Lord, help thou me to bear much fruit. Then we'll be generous and helpful to others. That's what I'll be doing if I'm really meaning what I'm praying. We'll seek to serve God wherever and whenever we can. And we'll sacrifice. And as the hymn says, stretch every nerve for God's glory. We'll seek to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. All these positive ways will serve the cause of mortifying and remaining the remaining sin. There can be no life without the positive life. But then I would say the third thing under this heading is accepting help. Accepting help. I'm trying to be practical here and actually say these are the tools that we ought to have in our in our toolbox. And Okay, so number one, ladies and gentlemen, now we're changing his completely. Number one is saying yes, running to, holding on to, clinging to, wrapping yourself in the imputed righteousness of Christ and and washing yourself in his blood. Number two is full-blown honesty, transparency with yourself. Man, I don't do anything and let the law of God break you into a million pieces. Make it turn you into shambles so that you'll remain humble and not self-righteous. He says number three, number three is accepting help from others. 
accepting help from others. Now, this is where it gets always baffling to me from the Christian life. Wait a minute. Why do I need help from others if supposedly it is God's power giving me the ability to say no to sin and yes to God? I don't need, why would I need the help of mere mortals, sinful human beings, when I have supposedly the eternal omnipotent God helping me? Why would I need another sinner to help me when supposedly God is the one helping me? That's where it always gets baffling and confusing. Hey, you've got God. Well, wait a minute. I, I Now I need other people to help me. Now, okay, so other people are going to help me. All right, let's see. Let's see. Let's see how they're supposed to help me do this. Well, I know we're in an hour. Let's see if we can at least try to finish this one up. As we are fighting against and putting sin to death, and these, these are tools, tips, the scripture gives us, and even commands that the scripture gives us. So accepting help. In the final chapter to the letter to the Galatians, the apostle Paul tells the uh, entire congregation. He says this in Galatians 6 and verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens. That, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. It says, bear ye one another's burdens. All right, class, whenever we see a command, that is law. Whenever we see law, inevitably, inevitably, it condemns. Inevitably, it demonstrates and shows us our failure. Now, I know most Christians don't hold a law gospel, a law, a law gospel distinction. I know. I know they confuse and confound the two, but law condemns. So when I see bear one another burdens, yes, I should strive to try to bear other people's burdens. But you know how many times I'm going to realize I don't want to bear other people's burdens because their burdens become my burdens and I don't want to be burdened because I am, well, self-seeking and I desire my own thing. So in many cases, you may bear other people's burdens only because you like to get the gossip and you like to get the, the low down and you like to be all involved in someone else's business. So in in many cases, even when oh, trying to obey that, you're actually committing sin. But see, be, but no, no. So, so, so supposedly, this is the way we kill sin is by bear, by seeking help for someone to bear my burden. Now, again, why do I need someone to bear? And how do they bear my burden in killing my sin? Now, is this where we're going to turn into accountability partners? And we're going to turn into all of, again, why do Christians need all of, that's the kind of stuff supposedly lost people need in Alcoholics Anonymous or in Narcotics Anonymous. Wait, I thought we have the power of God. It sounds like we're just like everyone else, right? And so... Fulfill the law of Christ. So bear ye. What does that mean? Carry. You carry one another's burdens. And so that is in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. This is what we are to do. I've heard Christians or those who profess to be Christians who say that, well, they don't, they don't need other Christians. They don't need to go to church. They don't need to be amongst other Christians. And really be involved in the life of the church. They, they can worship God in their own way. In their own home. In their own place. But in, the, in, in that way. They are defying and disobeying. A command of God. I'm not being um, ungracious. I trust. Here's a command. Just like the ten commandments. That we are to obey. Not to lie. Not to steal. Not to murder. Not to commit adultery. 
All right, so he's telling you this is law. Let me tell you again, law is condemning. It tells you what you are to do. You don't do it. The gospel tells you what Christ did and that he did it for you. Law drives you to Christ. Christ takes care of what the law demands by imputing his obedience to said law to you. Christ obeyed this. You don't. We should seek to, but it should drive us ultimately to Christ. And, and again, it, it seems like what, and he's not explicitly said it, but it seems to be implied that, hey, if we go to church and we're around other Christians, then somehow we're going to have the ability to say no to sin. But how many sins happen in the church? All the time. I've known people who profess to be Christians who go to church, and I've met uh, professing Christians who don't go to church. Sometimes the don't go to church people seem much more committed, dedicated, disciplined. They do Bible studies. They do this. They do that. And then many Christians who go to church... They don't seem near as dedicated and many times find themselves in great sin. I've been, I have not missed basically, other than being sick, I've not missed a church service, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, very few times in like what, 30 something years? Let me tell you, I've committed all kinds of sins. It's a positive comment, particularly a positive comment. Bear ye carry one another's burdens and these these people who say I'll I'll just live my Christianity private I have a private form of Christianity they are not obeying this command in what way can you really practically obey this command okay I'm going to challenge this a little bit you can bear other people's burdens and not be at church I've seen a lot of people in church who don't bear other people's burdens, okay? I know that very, 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 very well, okay? Okay, two quick stories. My mom is in the hospital dying. I'm a teenager. I'm supposed to cut the grass at the church. Everyone knows that my mom's in the hospital dying, and I get a phone call, why haven't you cut the grass at the church? And I'm like, I don't know, my mom's dying? Okay, right? So it was like, hey, can I take care of it for you? And then I'm a pastor. My father is dying, just died of cancer, like... 24 hours ago, 48 hours ago, I don't even know how long ago. And then I get an email. Hey, do you answer the emails from people in the church? Well, yeah, I always try to make it a problem. Well, you didn't answer mine. And I look and I'm like, oh yeah, the one you sent the day my father died of cancer. (laughs) I didn't get an email asking me how I was doing. No, no. It's sometimes you're just kind of like, what in the world? So, you know, sometimes bearing burdens it can happen outside of church. It can happen inside of church. So this, I don't know why he's connecting this. Like this tells you, you have to be at church. But once again, he's preaching you law. He's giving you law to kill sin. Law doesn't kill sin. Law doesn't kill sin. Law exposes you being killed by sin. Law demonstrates your inability to stop sinning. They don't see or know their fellow Christians because they never meet with them or know their fellow Christians because they, they are not there. They, they don't listen to their, to their needs, to their fears, to their cries. They are neglecting to obey this law of Christ to carry the burdens of other Christians. The burdens are then heavier for us. And so look at the context of 
of, of that passage. If you were to turn to Galatians 6, see how this chapter begins. Let me read it to you from verse 1. It starts by referring to a Christian who has been caught in a sin and is burdened with his fall. I don't know how this is being used in how to kill sin. This is what this is telling you, instructing you when someone has fallen in sin, you bear the burden of restoring, helping them get back. That doesn't kill the sin. You're helping them recover from a fall. It doesn't even guarantee that they won't fall into the same sin 30 minutes later, an hour later, five hours later. I don't know how this becomes a tool in killing sin. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm having a hard time with this one. I'm having a hard time with this one. And so the Apostle Paul is saying there in Galatians 6 and verse 1, he says, this is the situation. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. So there has been this openness about this matter. There has been transparency about this matter. This, this brother has fallen. It's been... He's been overtaken in a fault. And then there are those people who haven't been overtaken with a fault. Those who have been spiritually minded. And they are called to restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, with humility, with tenderness, with grace. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And so he's telling the congregation after this, why they must carry one another's, bear one another's burdens. And one reason is to restore such a brother. This is, this is part of our fellowship. This is part of a communion together. We are not here to just, just come and, uh, and uh, sing some hymns, hear the preaching, pray, and then just disperse and then be detached from each other. It, it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be. We ought to see, are we, are we there to restore a brother, a sister, help someone? Um, am I watching out for this? Because if I'm not, then in what way am I obeying the command of a scripture? So if you don't know the, one another, then you can't be restoring people because you don't know them. You don't know what's going on in people's lives. And then sometimes happens, I, I have seen it, we have, we have seen it. Suddenly, we, we hear of a person's fall so drastically. And we are all surprised. I didn't even know such a thing was happening. Well, where were you? In what way were you um, really connecting with individuals in the church? Let us not be so reserved, dear friends. Let us be open. And, and be people who are not prying into people's lives, not just trying to get, get stuff for, for gossip and for conversation, but a real genuine care for one another. If you are not carrying one another's burdens, dear friends, it shows a selfishness that we all have in our sinful nature. Individuals need the help that we can give, give them. <clears throat> And so when we say, when a person says, well, I, I, don't, I don't need to go to church. But that brother, that sister needs you. And the help that you can give him. Because these, these commands need to be somehow be fulfilled. Be practiced. 
So you, you, we ought to move into the battle. If you're a Christian, I'm talking about here, you need to move into the battle alongside any brother who has been overcome by the enemy. Restore him gently to his place of usefulness. Okay, I'm going to kind of go along with his here, but here's what we're going to do. All right. Three tools of sin. Now, I'm, I'm completely changing his up. I, I, I'm completely changing his up a little bit here. Okay, so here we go. He says we need other people. All right, here's what I would say. Number one, here's what I would say. Number one, we need to say yes to the imputed righteousness of God, cling to it, run to it, clothe ourselves in it, and, wait, and bathe in the blood of Jesus Christ. Number two, so that's number one. Number two, we need to openly, honestly acknowledge and see our sin and be crushed by it, humbled by it, so that we can stay away from pride, arrogance, and self-righteousness. And number three, in order to kill sin, we do need, in a sense, battlefield medicine. We do need to have... Sometimes we need other people to restore us, but we need medicine. We need to be restored. We need forgiveness. Sometimes that may, I mean, obviously it comes from Christ. If we confess our sins, he's faithful enough to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Sometimes we need other people to run with their medical kit to bandage us up and to pick us up and to carry us. So I will say, if you want to say that we, we need other people, then we do need sometimes other people to pick us up after we have fallen and we have, you know, destroyed ourselves in a million pieces. We need Christians to come pick us up. I just think sometimes I, I don't I, I I struggle with number three. I'll leave number three for you to try to figure out. I I I struggle with number three. I do believe that the church needs more battlefield medics. So that we run with our medical kit, we bandage, we cover, we protect, love covers a multitude of sins, we don't gossip, we don't slander, we don't tell everyone else, we try to pick up, we pick together, we put back together, and we restore. So many times the church doesn't seek, they're not battlefield medics. They run out there with their phone to take a selfie with the mutilated body and where they can go show everyone and tell everyone and they can gossip and slander and, and condemn and tell everyone how bad the other person is and how good they are. So sometimes I don't, I don't, sometimes I've experienced it in the church. A lot of times though, even in the midst of experiencing the good, you get all the bad. So I, I, this, I, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to say. Number one, we run, we cling to the imputed righteousness of Christ. Number two, we are open, so brutally open and honest with how much we fall short of the law of God. Number three, I'm going to say we constantly are in a reminder that we have an advocate with the Father, that we have a high priest, that we have a sacrifice, and that we have forgiveness in Christ Jesus. I'm going to say the battlefield medic we need is not so much other people, is Christ. Christ is the one that we come, when we have sinned, we're like, Lord, I have sinned. We we should, I'm going to say this. Number one, we need to run to the imputed righteousness of Christ. Number two, we need to be open about our sin. And number three, what we need to do is when we sin and we see our sin and our failure, we need to run to our, our high priest. We need to run to our advocate. We need to run to the one who will forgive us, cleanse us, and put us back together. We That's the one who we need to run to. I will stop right there. Those are my three. 
Those are my three. Now, the name of that sermon is Five Tools to Kill Your Sin, Part 1 and Part 2. Please look it up on the Sermons 2.0 app. Please download it. Please stream the rest of it. Give them that download number. Give them that stream, all right? Give them. And look, there's a lot there I strongly agree with, right? Obviously, we look at it a slightly little different perspective, but there's much good there. Hey, that sermon has given me so... I mean, we, we're going on almost two hours, well, maybe close to two and a half, three hours of content off this one sermon. So I look, I'm not criticizing it. We just have a very different way of looking at it, but, but you're getting both perspectives. I just don't think those are tools that kill sin. And, and I don't even know if mine clearly kills sin because even he's acknowledged it's never really killed. So I don't know exactly how we approach this, but there you have it. Now you can contact me at newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Two very quick announcements. Number one, in less than one hour, the 24-hour prayer meeting on the Sermons 2.0 app began. So I don't know when you're going to hear this, but if you hear this soon, less than one hour on the Sermons 2.0 app, beta.sermonaudio.com, the 24-hour prayer meeting kicks off. Please be watching and tune in and see what you can do with it. And number two, just a quick reminder, the Theology Central podcast it is supported by listeners. So if you if you don't support, the th- podcast will go bye-bye. It's that simple. It, it, this, this will only be here as long as you want it to be here. You don't want it to be here, it will go away. If you want it to be here, you can go to theologycentral.net, hit the donate tab. On the Sermons 2.0 app, hit the give tab. Or on the Church One app, give the give tab. It, look, if, if we just got $1 per month from everyone who listens to us, Right? Just one. I would probably be making, I don't know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month. Easy. Just, just like, just yesterday, we had over a thousand downloads just yesterday on one platform. That's just one. On the other one, I think we had three, four, five thousand. So we probably had seven thousand downloads just yesterday. If one person, if, if everyone gave one dollar per month, just per month, There, I, I would have to tell you to stop giving. I would have to say, I, I need 50% of you to stop giving. Okay. So, and so that it's that. So it's really not a, a big burden if everyone would just do a little bit. So if you would love to, great. If you don't, hey, that's okay. Look, no, it's, if you, if you find value in it, you will. If you don't find value in it, you won't. And if you don't find value in it, I understand that. And if it goes away, hey, it's been a fun ride. So there you have it. All right. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Woo. I'm exhausted. Thank you for listening. Everyone have a great night. Hey, 24 hour prayer meeting begins in less than one hour on the Sermons 2.0 app, beta.sermonaudio.com. Hey, at least watch the beginning and let's see how, I don't even know how it's all going to work. I have no idea. I have no idea. I just know they're promoting it. I'm promoting it. Because I need to be challenged in my own prayer life because I stink at it. So, you know, that, let, that, let's, 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 uh, let's see what we can find and what we can gain from it. All right. If you watch any of it, you have any thoughts or feedback, I'd love to hear. And, uh, yeah. And just remember, you're also supposed to be listening to a sermon on prayer before it starts. So you need to get on the Sermons 2.0 app and find a sermon on prayer really, 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 really fast. Okay. And you may want to listen to it on higher speed. All right. Thank you for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.